You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. What a treat to worship with you all. Let's be seated. And as you are seated, uh, you can uh, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the ushers will be bringing these Bibles down the uh, aisles here, and if you just put your hand up, they'll be happy to give you one of these Bibles that should serve you well this morning. Uh, it is an absolute joy uh, for me to be here this morning. Uh, Chris and Lisa Shipley are some of our dearest friends, and we have had the privilege of uh, visiting here multiple times over the last number of years and watch the growth of this congregation. And it is just an absolute joy to see uh, so many of you, uh, but also to hear of your growth in grace as we ask uh, about the church each time we're with the Shipleys. I also want to thank uh, Pastor Ted, who I am glad can't hear me anytime pastors get rest. I'm a happy man. And so uh, I'm delighted for his invitation to be here and thank him for it. And I hope I can serve you in the time that I am here. Uh, Romans chapter 4. If you look at Romans chapter 4, I want to read the whole chapter with you. Um, and what I want to show you this morning is one of the sweetest truths I have ever learned in my Christian life. And that is that God enjoys the imperfect obedience of his children. He doesn't just tolerate us and then slip us in the door to heaven at the end of our lives. He doesn't just declare us righteous and then sort of have an unsettled anger against everything we do for the rest of our lives. But God actually enjoys and delights in the imperfect faith and obedience of his children. It's life-changing. And I want to read to you Romans chapter 4, and I want to highlight three verses uh, from this uh, chapter. Now before I do, I'll just remind you the context of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1 through 3. Paul explains the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness of men and women, the sinfulness of people against God, that we've all rebelled against God. And then he explains that we're, because we've all sinned, we're all condemned by God. And then at the end of chapter 3, and in some ways for the rest of the book, but especially for the next number of chapters, he begins to explain how God makes sinners right with him, not based on what they do, but what Christ has done. They may, he, make, he, he declares sinners to be righteous, not because they've actually lived a life of perfect righteousness, but because Christ has lived a life of perfect righteousness for them. So this is distinct, this is important to know that when you talk about the Christian gospel, the reason it's different than the other religions of the world, the reason it's distinct is because in every other religion in the world, we are taught how to do something to be accepted by God. In Christianity, we are taught what has been done so that we can be accepted by God. We're not taught a way to keep God's commandments to be acceptable to God, but we are taught to obey his, to believe his Christ. 
so we can be acceptable to God. So in Romans chapter 4, what's going on is we're, giving, is we're being given an example of someone who believed. Abraham was the forefather of our faith. He was in some sense the first believer, the quintessential first believer who believed in God. And he's our example. He was made right with God just by believing, not by doing. He was a pagan who wasn't uh, following God in any kind of particular way. He was not following God. God interrupted. Abraham believed. Abraham was justified and declared righteous before God. And we're going to read the example of his faith And in the three verses we're going to focus on, verses 19, 20, and 21, we'll see just what amazing faith it really was. So let me read to you Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to the end of the chapter. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against, the Lord, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring 
being. Some of you are tracking with me, and some of you are lost in a long Jewish argument. So clue in. These are our three verses. Here they come. (laughs) He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's read those three verses one more time. Verse 18, 19, 20. Don't miss how wild they are. It's not every day a voice from heaven promises a hundred-year-old man he's going to have a baby, even though his wife has been infertile her whole life. Abraham was not a 100-year-old guy with a 25-year-old wife. He was a 100-year-old man with a wife who was just 25 years his junior. They were both as good as dead when it came to having kids. And yet, the Bible says, he did not weaken. That's verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is God's word. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we come before you and we ask you now, that you would come and speak to us by your word. Lord, we fellowship with those we love by talking to them. And we want to fellowship with you by hearing you talk to us. We pray, Lord God, that we talk back to you in prayer as you speak to us even this morning. Lord, we ask you above everything that we would have a sense of your presence as you speak your word to us. We ask specifically that you would save those who are unconverted this morning. And we ask specifically that all of us who have any sense of being under God's legal judgment would be freed to realize we are under his good, smiling pleasure in Christ as we walk imperfectly in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, trusting only him for our help. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. And it's not a story from ancient history. It's actually a pretty recent story. It happened just a few weeks, maybe a couple months ago. And basically, it happened to me during the preacher's golden hour. Those few moments between the first and the second service, when you're trying to keep yourself collected, a young woman of the congregation walked up to me and asked me a question. Now, I had just finished preaching on this particular passage, the one I just read to you. Specifically, I had 
preached on how God had made a promise to Abraham that Abraham and Sarah would have a child, that this child would bring a blessing, and ultimately this child would be the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. I had been preaching on how strong Abraham's faith was, how unwavering it was, how unweak it was, if I can make that a word. I had been speaking on how Abraham was fully and totally convinced of the promise of God. In other words, I was telling people what a great example of faith Abraham was, was to believers, is to believers today. No weakness in faith. No unbelief making him waver, fully convinced. And I was doing this because of a commitment that this church shares. I want to preach the word of God without apology. I just want to say what the Bible says. And so after I was done saying what the Bible says, that Abraham was fully convinced, didn't waver, was totally strong, this young woman walked up to me inquisitively, and she asked the question, What about Hagar? If Abraham had such strong, unwavering, unweakened faith, what is the deal with Hagar? Now, some of you are sitting here and saying, yeah, that's a good question. What is the deal with Hagar? But others of you are sitting saying, who is Hagar? And if we're honest, there are probably not a few sitting here this morning saying, what is a Hagar? And I want you to know that Hagar is a person. And not just any person, not the comic book character, Hagar the Horrible, which you can find in the Sunday Funnies. And if you aren't my age, I should assure you that this is not Sammy Hagar, the second lead singer of Van Halen, just in case anyone was concerned. This Hagar is the servant girl, the slave girl, who belonged to Abraham's wife, Sarah, who Sarah gave to Abraham so that she could bear a child, not for Abraham and Hagar, but for Abraham and Sarah. In other words, Hagar is the woman that Abraham and Sarah used to get a child for themselves. Hagar is a slave girl whom Abraham and Sarah used to have the baby Sarah could not have. Abraham took Hagar into his arms and he took her there to fulfill God's promises and he was taking her so that he could fulfill God's promises with his own hands. That's who Hagar was. And so when I was preaching the whole word of God without apology, talking about what strong, unwavering faith Abraham had, you now get a sense of what was meant when my sister walked up to me and said, what about Hagar? It's like if I was going on and on about how Bill Clinton was my favorite president and the best of all the U.S. presidents, and someone had come along and said, what about Monica Lewinsky? That's the kind of thing that's happening here. This sort of questioning that if this person is so great, how can they have done something so bad? 
And Hagar really is bad. Hagar is actually part of one of the really awful stories of the Bible. She is actually part of the background story behind the legendary Canadian author Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. Hagar, the character, is behind the movie The Handmaid's Tale and then the uh, series that was released on Amazon Prime this year, The Handmaid's Tale. In, In Atwood's story, rich, infertile, fundamentalist religious couples take young, fertile handmaids to be their breeders, to have their children. Basically, Atwood is warning, this is where America will go if you give the Christians too much influence. If you give the religious types too much influence, what you're going to wind up with is people who obey the Bible, and you'll get these sort of rich Christians, these fundamentalist Christians who take the Bible literally will grab, in, will grab fertile women when they're infertile. And in the book, in the movie, they read the Hagar story over the couple as the husband takes this slave to bear children for his infertile wife. Now, the problem with Atwood's warning. The problem with Atwood's concern that this will be what happens if religious people get too much influence is that no one who loves and obeys the Bible reads the Hagar story as something we should follow. Nobody who takes the Bible literally reads Abraham and says, I got to obey the Bible. Rather, the Bible makes it very, very clear That the whole story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar is not told to us as an example we should follow, but as a wicked, cruel, messy sin we should avoid. And every Christian knows their Bibles, knows that we should not emulate Abraham and Sarah's oppressive, abusive, unbelieving, wicked sin. That is why my friend, ultimately your sister in Christ, had such an amazing question when she came up to me and said, You're saying he's unwavering. You're saying that he grew strong in his faith. But what about Hagar? And ultimately, behind the question, what about Hagar, is a deeper question. Whenever you have a story, like the story of Hagar in the Bible, and it makes you go, what about Hagar? Ultimately, that's only scratching the surface. The really hard question is, what about God? Who is this God who praises Abraham? Who says, this is the example you follow. This is what unwavering faith looks like. This is what it looks like to believe Even this one who was so unfeeling at the least and oppressive towards Hagar. How can God know about Abraham's faults and say such glowing things about his faith? Now this is not abstract theology, is it? 
I mean, you've been praying through December that you get to share the gospel, and I'm assuming some of you have been able to share the gospel, and one of the first things that happens when you do share the gospel is people say things like, well, what about? You fill in the blanks. David? Moses? Peter? Paul and that oppressive view of women? It can often feel like the people of the Bible are the greatest liability we have to commending the Bible. You know what I mean? How can God know about Abraham's faults and yet say such glowing things about his faith? And what I find, and I find this so often in the Bible, is when you don't avoid hard questions like that, you actually get some of the sweetest truths in the whole of Scripture. Because what you find when you start digging at why God can say such marvelous things about Abraham is you start to find the reasons why God can say such marvelous things about sinners like you and me. You start to see the secret. Oh, it's not a secret. You start to see the revealed truth of why God can say such commending, encouraging, delighting things about people who've had lives like you and me. And so I want to make three points from this passage this morning. I want to make three points that I hope will help us deal with this passage and come to a greater appreciation of how God can delight in true Christians through the gospel. The first point I want to make is the Bible is not ashamed to show the faults of her heroes. Now, I got an email a week or two ago. It said, Ryan, would you please give us the three points because our people like to do fill in the blanks. And I, I didn't respond to that email right away. And then I said, I don't, I don't want to respond to that email. And now you have a blank sheet in front of you. <laughs> and some of you are like, I don't even know what I'm going to do. And so here's my assurance. I'll, I'll, I'll respond. Here's what's happening. I just wanted there to be more blanks for you to fill in. <laughs> and so here it is. First point. The Bible is not ashamed to show the faults of her heroes. The Bible is not ashamed to show the faults of her heroes. In the 1660s, Sir Peter Lely was appointed to be the king of England. At that time, that was Charles II. So in the 1660s, Sir Peter Lely was appointed to be the king of England's principal painter in ordinary. So we would basically say the prime minister's photographer. This was the guy who was hired to Photoshop the king and make sure he looked good. And I, I read a little bit of the history of this. It's kind of fascinating. Back in the day, what the kings wanted in their painting is they wanted really big calf muscles. And so if you had a, you know, if you had a king who's a little weak in the calf, Lely was a little bigger to fill him out. And uh, over the course of Sir Peter Lely's life, he was not only the principal painter in ordinary for Charles II, but when Charles II was deposed and Oliver Cromwell, 
the Bible-believing Christian who would call himself the Lord Protector of England when he became the king. Sorry, not the king, but the Lord Protector. He's a lot like a king, though. Peter Lully set about to paint him, and Oliver Cromwell said to Peter Lully, paint me, warts and all. And he did. If you go look at a picture of Cromwell, it's not looking too good. Because he was painted with all the ugly included. And that is way, the way the Bible paints pictures of her heroes. It's always warts and all. All the heroes of the Bible except one are men and women who the Bible ruthlessly exposes as sinners. So yes, here in Romans, we read Abraham did not weaken in faith. He was fully convinced. But Romans is not the only book in the Bible that the Holy Spirit inspired. And if you'll look back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15, you will see the Holy Spirit filling out the picture of Abraham's life and including warts and all. And you see that in Genesis 15. Why don't you go there and we'll read some of it because we'll see how honest the Bible is about her heroes. Genesis 15, remind you a little bit of the context. Here's this wandering uh, pagan nomad named Abraham. He's become famous now. He wasn't then. And he was a nobody. But God comes to him with a voice from heaven. So if you've ever said to yourself, if only I could hear a voice from heaven. Well, here's what Abraham got. He got a voice from heaven. And that voice from heaven said to him in Genesis 15, 5, and he, that is God, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, and if you are able to number him, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that is an insensitive promise to make to an infertile couple. But here's what God says to Abraham, because God can keep his promises. If you look at the stars... And even make some attempt to count them. You're getting close to the amount of ancestors, descendants rather, you are going to have. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he said, and here's what Abraham said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And I love this. So honest. Here is Abraham receiving a voice from heaven because there was no Bible. And he's told, you are going to have as many children as there are stars in the sky. And Abraham's answer is, how am I going to know? What's God supposed to answer at that point? Well, I, I, I could arrange a voice from heaven. He's already speaking to him utterly supernaturally. The very same thing Abraham says here gets Zechariah disciplined in the Christmas story, doesn't it? The angel comes and says, your wife will have a son and you will name him John. And Zechariah says, how will I know? And the angel's like, I'm an angel from heaven. That's how you know. And yet God does not discipline Abraham here. But mercifully continues to deal with him despite the fact that his faith is struggling to lay hold of the promise. You ever had a faith 
who is struggling to lay hold of a promise. God works all things together for good for those who are, love him and are called according to his purpose. So I'm going to give you poverty, debt, and cancer. And then you find yourself there, don't you? Struggling to believe. Abraham had a faith that said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, if you go on in the life of Abraham, just, just look over to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 16, and you just see right beside that number 16, it says right there, Abraham and Hagar. And so right after his struggle with faith, he just plain falls flat on his face and decides, well, maybe I can fulfill this promise by grabbing my handmaiden and having a child with her. But when we get to Genesis 17, it's not like Abraham has all of his problems worked out. It's not like Abraham is now a super believer, even when we get to Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, Abraham, God is coming to Abraham. He's saying, hey, we're in a binding relationship. We're in a covenant. I'm totally committed to you. I'm going to do you good. And then in Genesis 17, 18, put your finger there if you're there. Genesis 17, 18, it says this. As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, there are many meaningful expressions of faith, but this is not one of them. He fell on his face, and he laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, sorry, just 10 years as junior, bear a child? And then Abraham, this is classic, maybe you've done this. Abraham suggests a better way to the Almighty. He says, oh, the Ishmael. Now, FYI. Ishmael was Hagar's son. He's still going back to that. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The ESV study Bible has this great note, so understated. Abraham's reaction indicates that he considers God's promise that Sarah shall bear a son as, to say the least, highly improbable. I love it. Romans says he doesn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead. But Genesis fills out the picture and shows us this was not a man who instantly microwaved up some perfect faith and never wavered for the whole of his existence. But he was a man who doubted God's promises, struggled with God's promises, sometimes fell flat on his face, and took the completion of God's promises into his own hands. And this is completely consistent with the way the Bible speaks about all of her heroes. Noah gets out of the ark. Boy, if ever there was a time you should just have a praise and worship service, it's right there. But Noah gets drunk. Moses is a hothead who murders an Egyptian to accomplish the plans 
of God. And even after 40 years as a shepherd, he still needs to be disciplined for his bad temper. David was a man after God's own heart whose heart didn't just bleed theology, it, blew, it bled poetry. And yet in a moment of weakness, he committed adultery and murder and deceit. You don't need to turn on the History Channel to find out all the dirt on the Bible. The Bible will tell you itself. It has nothing to hide. It is not trying to show its heroes as heroes. Rather, the Bible is always aiming to expose its main characters as sinners in need of a Savior. Peter was a man who loved Jesus boldly and then denied Jesus boldly three times. Paul was a man who advanced the kingdom of God and planted churches everywhere, but he wasn't the guy you necessarily wanted on your, your, team, your catalytic team management project because he couldn't get along with Barnabas and had to part ways with him. Beloved, there is only one hero in the Bible. There is only one person of whom Peter says he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I cannot even take in how amazing that statement is. When was the last time when someone said something negative about you and you said nothing? But when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Jesus, in front of a hostile crowd, said, which of you convicts me of sin? And no one could. Beloved, most of you don't know me well, but if I were just to stand up and say here, which of you convicts me of sin? There are enough witnesses in this room for any one of us. Pontius Pilate examined Jesus and said, I find no guilt in him. In the Bible, there is only one sinless Savior. Everybody else is a sinful person in need of a Savior. Our lives show our need. His life shows God's supply. Church is not where we come to get our kryptonite batteries recharged so we can return to the world and be heroes for God. There are no heroes in this room, not a one. But everyone who truly knows the Lord in this room is someone who has understood that there's only one hero in the universe, the one who does not sin like us, but who has given his sinless life for us and for our salvation. It's so wonderful. If you think the Bible is a book full of heroes, or if you teach your kids that the Bible is a book full of heroes, you will walk away from the Bible disillusioned, thinking it is a book full of hypocrites when you see their sins. But if you realize that the Bible is a book full of sinners with only one Savior, then you will find the sweet surprise of God's salvation on every page of 
the scripture. Everyone in this book is like you and I. And if you accept him and turn to him in repentance and faith, he will make you a saved sinner by faith alone in him. Just one more application before we move on to this point. How many of you have ever heard a great illustration of faith? Maybe a George Mueller story. If you don't know George Mueller, here's what happened. Basically, everything he prayed for happened all the time. Maybe you read that and you're like, that's not my life. And then you go to the Bible and you see, man, these guys were just so awesome. I'm not like these guys. Maybe you need to read what they were actually like. They believed, but they needed help with their unbelief. They believed and they took matters into their own heart hands. And then they learned to believe again. They believed, but then sometimes they laughed at the idea of God, God's promises, but they kept on believing. If that's you, the devil will tell you you're not really a Christian because you don't have this amazing faith. The Bible would tell you that you're just like Abraham. You have true and saving faith that will save you for time and eternity. Beloved, we are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the strength of our Savior. You are just as saved when your faith is soaring and full as you are when your faith feels like it drained out your toes. Beloved, if you drive across a bridge in a Lexus, or you drive across a bridge in a rickshaw with a broken wheel, you're going to get across the bridge. Because getting over the water is about the strength of the bridge, not the strength of the vehicle. And being saved and going to heaven is done by the perfection of the Savior, not by the perfection or the heroic faith of the believer. My second point is this. God is not ashamed to graciously celebrate his imperfect children. Some of you are still reeling from the fact that there's no um, blanks to fill in, so let me say that again. God is not ashamed to graciously celebrate his imperfect children. So you probably noticed, but I've actually made the problem we talked about at the start of the sermon harder. How can God say Abraham's faith is not weakening, unwavering, and fully convinced? How can God say that about Abraham? How can the same God who inspired Genesis now tell us that Abraham's faith is unwavering, unswerving, and he was fully convinced, even though we've read the record that Abraham had trouble believing? Is God like the preacher at the funeral? Even though everybody who knew the guy in the casket knew he was hell on wheels, but this preacher talks like this guy's going straight to the seventh heaven. Is God like that preacher? May it never be. May it never be. Is God a flatterer? Is God an exaggerator? How can he speak this way about Abraham? What about Hagar? 
the answer to why God can speak this way is actually quite simple. It's that God is not ashamed to graciously celebrate his imperfect children. The liberal scholar comes at this and they say, in Genesis, he says Abraham has struggling faith. In Romans, it says Abraham has perfect faith. Therefore, the Bible can't be the word of God. Liberalism doesn't come out of nowhere, does it? It comes from people looking at the text of Scripture and saying this doesn't line up. What they forget is that the text of Scripture is bound together by a gracious God. They forget that the text of Scripture is bound together by a gracious God who is not ashamed to graciously celebrate His imperfect children. James Montgomery Boyce says, God seems to remember the victories and not the failures of His children. Imagine a baseball game where the team is down by one point in the first inning and they're down by one point in the second inning and for eight innings they just keep striking out, they keep fumbling around and when the eighth inning comes or the ninth inning comes they're still down by one. And then in the bottom of the ninth, they crank a single shot home run. Now it's tied. They knock a couple more guys on base. And then someone cranks it off for three more runs. And then they win four to one. And at McDonald's, after the game, the coach says, you guys killed him. What's he doing? He's not flattering. He's not lying. He's graciously assessing. He's treasuring the victories over the defeats. And that is what our God does. Our God did not just see Abraham ask questions. He didn't just see him sin with Hagar. He didn't just see him laugh at his promises. Our God also saw Abraham leave his father's homeland to follow a voice from heaven. He saw Abraham believe an unbelievable promise. He saw Abraham rise in faith when he looked at those stars and believed God's promises. He saw, he heard Abraham laugh, and then he saw Abraham circumcise all of his household with the mark that said, God is going to keep his promises to me. He saw Abraham looking for and living for a city whose builder and maker is God. He saw Abraham take his son Isaac, the son of promise, the son that came to him when he was a hundred years old, and he saw him ready to sacrifice him because he had such deep trust in God. He saw this Abraham, and he saw the whole of his life, not just his worst moments. And in the spirit of seeing this whole life, God says, oh, he didn't weaken. He grew strong. He is my child, and I see the highlight real far more than I see the foibles. Oh, beloved You wives should understand this attitude in God. If your husband stops at Loblaws and with his pathetic taste in roses finds the most wilted ones in the back of the freezer, you are still able to say, but at least they're roses. And this is a high moment. There's a sense in which we're able to see these generous gifts even in the midst of their imperfections. 
A drill sergeant might stand over the cadet that they are trying to train and slam them because their shoes aren't polished perfectly and because their bed is not iron and crisp and sharp. But that same drill sergeant, when they go home and see the bed their four-year-old has made with all of its lumpy, bumpy imperfections, but the sheets are pulled up and the comforters aren't covering too many toys, is able to say, man, what a good job you've done. And this is the same with our Heavenly Father towards us. He's able to see our imperfections and He's able to see the imperfect obedience that the Spirit is creating in us and He is able to celebrate every single thing He sees. Amen? In fact, this is the pattern through the whole of Scripture. This is what we see over and over in the Bible. If you go and look at the record of King Asa in 1 Kings chapter 15, now you can look there or you can just take my word for it and look it up later, but in 1 Kings chapter 15 verse 11, we get told about good King Asa. And listen to what Asa does, remembering that in Israel, where the idols were, where the worship that was against God was, was on the high places. Listen to this. It says, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 1 Kings 15, 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at Brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Great obedience. Countercultural obedience. Totally imperfect obedience from a heart that was totally devoted to God. Can you believe the gracious way God is able to see and assess and celebrate his imperfect children? Or perhaps one of my favorite examples in the entire Bible is from John 17, 6. Jot that verse down. Look at it this afternoon. John 17, 6. Here's Jesus praying for Peter and James and John. And the first disciples, the ones who would go on to be apostles, he's praying for them. And he says, Father, they have kept your word. And you're almost sitting there going, Jesus, I know you're the star of the Gospels, but I'm kind of wondering if you've read the Gospels. Because these guys fight about who's going to be number one. They have their mama come and talk to you about who gets the biggest throne. And they regularly fall into unbelief and confusion. And you pray to God, Father, they have kept your word. 
Why? Because Jesus saw them leave all they had to follow him. Because even though they had understanding, it was an understanding that came as they were trying to learn from him. Even though they have falls, they were falls on the path of following him. Even though they had doubts, they were doubts that came in the midst of a life of faith. And Jesus, seeing the big picture, is able to celebrate the victories and the triumphs and the big picture and the overall of his dear children. Or what about Hebrews chapter 11? How many of you have said to your kids, Honey, you got to follow Samson. And yet that's what the writer of Hebrews writes. He says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including Samson. Why would you mention Samson? His life was marked by falling on his face sexually all the time. Because God remembers this marvelous moment where Samson's faith is rekindled and he kills all the Philistines to advance the kingdom of God. And he remembers Noah who got drunk mostly for the ark he built. And he remembers Moses who murdered mostly for the patience he had in leading the people out of Israel. He remembers David who had a heart after his even though David fell. Do you see the gracious assessment God is making of his people. We see this again in the Corinthian letters, don't we? You do know that the Corinthians get blasted on basically every side, right? And yet Paul starts the letter, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even there, Paul is noticing the grace and celebrating the grace present in the Corinthians. Now surely in this room there's someone with enough sense of justice, enough sense of what's right and what's wrong to be saying, how can God do this? How can it be right for the holy God of the universe, for the God who dropped Uzzah dead for one sin and the God who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for one lie, how can it be right for God to overlook all these sins and to celebrate all the graces? And if you're asking that question, it's a good mark of your understanding of the God of the Bible. And here's how God can overlook all of these sins and celebrate the graces. It's because he doesn't overlook one of these sins. But he pins them all to the flesh of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, when he hung on the cross, was paying for all the imperfections in Abraham's faith and all the sins in Samson's life and all the sins and imperfections in your life and in mine. And God is able to celebrate the graces and the goodness in our redeemed lives because first, our sins are covered by Christ's righteousness, and second, what God is watching is the real birth of the work of the Spirit. How many of you have ever gone to visit a newborn in the hospital, looked down at that squished little face and said, can't even walk. Well, good. I'm going to trust that's a nobody. And if you do, please don't sign up for the visitation team. But the, the, the whole point is, God is seeing where his child is going. 
He's seeing the bud that's being formed. Some of you may garden and you don't walk out into a garden where the tomatoes are hard and beginning and where the zucchinis are just coming off the vine and say, this is so imperfect. You say, this is the first fruits of a harvest that is to come. And you need to know that your God can assess your soul that way. Though the flower of Christ-likeness is not fully budded in your soul, as the leaves unpetal and unfurl, God sees where it's going, and he is marveling at the beauty of what is becoming in your life. Here's my last point. Not only... Is God honest about the sins of his people? And not only is God able to celebrate the imperfect obedience of his people, but all of this, here it is, all of this should shape the way we imperfectly follow God. It should shape the way we see Christians with glaring faults, shouldn't we? If you've been in the church, say, longer than a day, you've recognized that Christians have some glaring faults. I love the quote from one pastor. He says, I've pastored three churches in my life. Each time I wanted them to become the new Jerusalem, but sinners kept showing up and asking for baptism. And sometimes those sins are so last week Yesterday, this morning in the car, right now sitting beside me. (laughs) That it can be hard to extend grace to those people. If we met Abraham while Hagar was pregnant, you'd get a different picture of the man than if you met him leaving his parents to follow the bare word of God. In one, you'd see his worst moment. In the other, you'd see the trajectory of his life. It's so vital that we look across the people of the church and see the trajectory of where they're going, not the bad moment from last week. The story is told of a great preacher named Charles Simeon. Simeon was a preacher in the 1700s. And uh, Simeon, I take great comfort from because even though he's mightily used of God in his preaching ministry, he struggled with with a bad temper. And early in his Christian life, he went and visited another preacher by the name of John Venn. And while Simeon was visiting Ven, uh, Ven's servant came out to sort of help Simeon with something. I think it was to get on his horse. And apparently the servant was having a bad day, didn't serve Simeon well, and Simeon lost it on the servant. Outburst of anger. Well, Ven's kids were like, what is going on with Simeon? And they said to their dad, is there any grace in Charles Simeon? And Ven, being a wise man, said, go get some peaches from the tree in the orchard. Of course, it wasn't time for the peaches to be ripe, so they came back with some hard, wooden, green peaches. There's nothing more glorious than a ripe peach, is there? And nothing so bad as an unripened peach. And Ven took these peaches in his hands, and he said to his kids, Just a few more rains, and the peaches will be ripened. 
And so too with Brother Simeon. Just a few more reigns. And I wonder if you look at the Christians in this room like that. Yeah, there's some struggles. But just a few more reigns. One of the joys of being a Christian, uh, being a pastor at one place for a long period of time, I've been at the church I'm at now for 15 years, is when you're first there, you see people messing up for three months, and you're like, oh no, they're going to go down the drain. But after 15 years, they're there loving their kids, loving their wives, growing in maturity. It just took a few more reigns. And it's real possible to look at other Christians in the church and to despise them for their lack of growth and to see their imperfections without ever asking, well, maybe I'm supposed to be the rain. Maybe I'm supposed to be the one who brings the Bible study or shares the sermon or sends them a link to an encouraging devotional or does something that will rain God's grace on them. We're more able to do this when we realize that God is assessing us generously. He's not asking us to join Him in a quick condemning judgment of others, but to join Him in a generous assessment that celebrates the trajectory of other Christians' lives. Amen? Second thing is this should really change the way we view ourselves. There's probably nothing that impacts us more in our Christian life than the way we see ourselves, is there? The problem with us is we're just always talking to ourselves. And there's just nowhere to go if we're not saying the right things. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the problem with a good many Christians is that they're always listening to themselves rather than talking to themselves. And we need to speak the right things to ourselves. One of the wrong things we can speak to ourselves is we, we think that God doesn't have any gracious assessment of how we're growing, that he can't celebrate any of the good things in our lives, that all he's doing is he's the, he's the ultimate nitpicker in the universe who knows all of our faults and is condemning us. And in fact, we make it worse because we say that Christian maturity is when you're super aware of all the bad things about you. Now, there's a grain of truth to that. The more mature we are, the more we do know our sin. But the Holy Spirit is not the great joy destroyer who ministers the condemnation of God to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the great joy giver who ministers the grace of God to our hearts. And specifically, God's pleasure in the imperfect obedience of His children. But some people can never get there. They think the height of spirituality is always focusing on the worst. Now, one person illustrated this like this. Like you walk into someone's home and it's newly renovated. So you, you open the door and you see the fresh paint and the new cabinets and the beautiful couch. You're like, this is amazing. This is so beautiful. This is great. Did you do all this work yourself? And Yeah, it's amazing. And you go into the bathroom and there's a color that won't be out of style for at least 20 more years. And you just look through all the different parts of the house and you're marveling at it and telling your friends, your house looks so beautiful. And they say, well, I don't, I don't really feel honest with you just looking at all the beautiful parts of my house. You know I have trash under the sink. And I'm, I'm sure you do, but your house looks beautiful. I, I don't think you're getting it. I'm being a hypocrite. Let me, let me bring the trash out. So they, they dump it on the new coffee table. You see that diaper and the banana peel and the coffee grounds? That's me. That's me. This paint, this is all just superficial. 
If you want to know the real me, it's this wicked stuff right here. But beloved, it's right to rejoice in the renovation that God has done and is doing in our hearts. Yes, there is still trash to take out. And don't let anyone think that anything I'm saying doesn't mean we need to humbly repent and believe throughout our Christian lives. But, in the words of Richard Sibbs, it's wrong to only give, let God, listen to God's voice when he speaks to us about our sin and not listen to God and celebrate our graces. Something to that effect. It's vital that we get both of those. A Christian's view of themselves can notice that God is really working. And though there are many imperfections, he is singing and celebrating our many little victories. Let me leave you with two final thoughts. One, one of the most important things for you as a church to grow in Christ-likeness, one of the most important things for you as a church to grow in becoming like Jesus together as you become able in your interactions through the week, in your interactions after the service, in your interactions in small groups, you become able to speak the truth to one another in love. In order for a church to grow in Christ-likeness, they have to learn how to criticize one another, to point out where they're not being like Jesus. Sometimes you might think, well, if you say something bad about me, you're doing something wrong. No, if someone says something bad about you, they might be doing something right. They might be serving you. But you'll never see that culture where there's that right kind of criticism and that right kind of critique. You'll never see it flourish unless there's also a culture of celebration. And unless there's also a culture of just cherishing and loving all the good things. If you think that the people in your church are critiquing you all the time and then they have the spiritual gift of extra condemnation, you're not likely to open up your humble soul to all of that. Most of us will fall fall apart long before that. But if you know that God is working and He is celebrating all your little baby steps and He's rejoicing in them, and then you know that the people around you celebrate them and they notice them and they're celebrating them too, that kind of culture is the sort of culture where people can critique and it's not devastating. It's constructive, not condemning. So cultivate a culture where you treat each other the way God treats you. Where, yes, there's imperfections, but you celebrate each other's faith. Yes, there's imperfections, but you celebrate each other's gifts. Yes, there's imperfections, but you celebrate each other's virtues and growth and grace. And then when needed, a word is fitly spoken to correct a sin and bring someone closer to Christ. Well, let me leave you with this word. It's perhaps the most amazing of all. Not only did God say that Abraham was unwavering, that his faith was great and strong, not only does God make that marvelous assessment of Abraham's faith, but there's coming a day when God will look at every struggling, fighting for holiness Christian, and Jesus will say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. The mom who walks all day long seeking to love her kids. Yeah, she has a blow up every now and then, but the overall pattern of her life is she is laid out to serve. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Can you imagine that people like you and I, people who can't be part of the heroes of the Bible, because there are no heroes in the Bible except Jesus, you and I, as we walk imperfectly, stumbling towards heaven, seeking real and true holiness, we are going to come to the face of Jesus, and he is going to greet us with this generous assessment. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for how generous and kind you are. Lord, we thank you that you are honest with us about our sin. We thank you that you are generous and celebratory over our graces that you have created in us. And that you want us to live in light of a delighted Heavenly Father. Lord, we desperately need this. Or we will just continue on in grumpiness, anger, lust, jealousy, frustration, bitterness. But Lord God, under such a father as you, we will learn to be pleasing to you and we will feel the love of Christ constraining us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.